Hi, this is Pastor Nelson Mercado. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast from the Nashville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. I hope you are blessed by today's message. You notice the, uh, the title of our message on the screen. How many of you like to run? Like, some of you like to run? I, you know, I tell you, when I was a, um, a teenager, uh, I hated running. I hated running, and I remember I was preparing myself to go into the Navy, and so I had to get myself caught up. Yeah, there's a, a back, uh, feedback here. I'm not sure what it is. I had to get myself ready, and so I had to learn, you know, try to get myself in tune to running. You know, so if you don't like running, that's not going to be a good thing, because the Bible tells us we need to run the race so that we can finally get the crown of righteousness. Pray with me as we start our message this morning. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for Jesus, our Savior. We're thankful indeed for your grace. That grace indeed, uh, indeed amazes us because we cannot understand it. But we're thankful for it, and we've come to worship you, but we've also come to listen to what you have to say, and we pray that your, your Spirit may um, empower us, and that your Spirit may fill us, so that we will indeed run the race. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So some of you know that I, uh, I, was, I used to be part, uh, I, I served our country in the Navy. I was a hospital corpsman. Um, and because maybe, uh, I guess, because I was in the Navy, I, I developed a, 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 an admiration for the United States Navy SEALs. The Navy SEALs. This is uh, Navy uh, Air, uh, Navy Sea, Air, and Land teams, uh, the, the special forces of the United States Navy, and, I, and I, I love to see the videos. You can go on YouTube and you can find the videos of their training, and it's, you know, very intense to say the least. And I remember I, I've often, I would often fantasize uh, of, of being part of, of the Navy SEALs. Uh, when, when, a, when a sailor uh, applies to be part of the SEALs, if, if that sailor's going to make it all the way through, they spend over a year in a series of formal training environments um, uh, before they are, they're, they're awarded what is called a special warfare naval rating. Now, the crux of uh, the Navy training is what's called BUDS, or the SEAL training. It's called, it's called BUDS. BUDS stands for Basic Underwater Demolition, and it's a 24-week uh, uh, course uh, 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 the, basically, the, the main part of the training that a Navy SEAL goes through. But before attending BUDS, an applicant must first actually pass uh, through a, a prep course, uh, the Naval Special Warfare Preparation School. And, and this starts with an initial physical screening test, and then it, it, it moves on to a more demanding modified screening uh, test, one that includes, look at you, some of you young people, see if you can do this, uh, a minimum of 70 push-ups in two minutes, a time four-mile run in 31 minutes, and a time 1,000-meter swim with fins in 20 minutes, and there, there's a few others that they have there. And of course, the goal is to increase their stamina so that they are prepared to go into BUDS training, the main part of the SEAL training, BUDS and you know, uh, so think about it. Before going into buds, this is a picture of uh, of what you know. Some of the things you see in buds training, a candidate must be in tip, you know, in physical tip-top shape, right? Physical shape. And even then, some or the majority actually don't make it through. Now, buds training 
is divided into three phases, and the first phase uh, uh, ends with the infamous Hell Week. Maybe you've heard of Hell Week before. Hell Week is actually a five and a half days, a five and a half days of continuous training during which the candidates do not sleep more than four hours the entire week. They run more than 200 miles and do physical training for more than 20 hours each day. Hell Week. And this is probably the most intense part of, of, of the training. This is the part where many or the majority actually give up. Now here you are, these strapping big men who, who already proven that they're in physical tip-top shape, but during Hell Week, a lot of them, you know, the, the infamous walk where they, they, each student has a helmet, and so they, they bring their helmet and they walk toward a bell that's in, the, in front there, and they put the bell... Uh, the, the, the helmet on the ground, and they ring the bell three times, and that's basically what it means, that they, this is not for me, they've given up. And of the applicants that go through, uh, or apply to SEAL training, of the many that apply, only 9.5% actually make it through all the way, at, uh, through the entire year of training, before receiving the coveted SEAL trident. So think about it, friends, if in order to be part of the special forces of the United States Navy, the SEAL team, there's got to be a lot of dedication. There's got to be a lot of commitment. There's got to be a lot of discipline to be part of the SEALs. And, and, and you know, once you're a SEAL, I mean, this, this kind of thing continues. The training continues. The discipline continues. So many apply, only a few make it. How does this apply to our spiritual lives? Does God have special forces in this world? Does God have an army? He doesn't? I don't know. I don't hear anybody. Maybe he doesn't have an army. He has an army, and who are part of the army? We are part of the army. Do you think that God requires anything less than commitment and discipline? He does, indeed. If you are going to be part of God's army, you require discipline and commitment. Now, we've been talking about salvation. You remember we started talking about this Last month, 911 Rescue was our, our topic, and we talked about the word sozo. You remember the word sozo? This is a Greek word that is used for salvation. The word salvation, sozo, and, and so when a person is saved, that person was sozo. But, but it's, it's the same word that was used for when a person is healed, when a person is made well, that person was made sozo. And what we, what we learn is that the, the experience of salvation... This joy of salvation, we don't have to wait for Jesus to come in the clouds of heaven to experience the joy of salvation, because the joy of salvation is something we can experience in the here and now. Right now, you can experience the joy of salvation. And then that segue to our topic last uh, Sabbath, the certainty of assurance, the fact that we can be sure that we are saved, that God wants us to be sure that we are saved. And we looked at a, a, a few examples of people in a Bible, char Bible characters that had the assurance of salvation, that we can be sure of our salvation, not because of anything we do, certainly not because of how we feel salvation, because we are depending on the promises of God and not our feelings. God has promised it, and we take it to the bank. We can be sure of our salvation. But I touched on last uh, Sabbath the fact that 
we can have the assurance of salvation. Yeah, we are saved, but does that eliminate our responsibilities? It doesn't eliminate our responsibilities. So do we have a responsibility in salvation? Absolutely. So what is that responsibility? That's what we're going to look at this morning. So let's open our Bible scripture reading. But we'll read verses 24 through 27. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. You'll also see it on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. The Apostle Paul tells the Corinthian church, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run? But one receives a prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus. Not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. So here in these verses, the Apostle Paul is using an illustration of a then well-known athletic contest, the the predecessor to the Olympic Games that were held in Greece and and the Hellenistic world. And he does this to illustrate the subject under discussion, namely the the necessity of self-denial for the salvation of others. Now, we could probably spend a lot of time in in talking about this discipline that Paul says he, he went through, the, the, the subjection of his body, uh, and how that applies to our, our Christian lives. And perhaps at, a, at, at some point in the future we can talk about that. But t- today I want to highlight what he says in the last part of verse 27. Notice he says, Lest, when I have preached to others, I myself should become what? Disqualified. This word disqualified comes from the Greek word that means not standing the test. And in the eight times that this word is used in the, uh, in the New Testament, it, it always is used in the context of passing a test and not being disapproved. Now Henry read from the King James Version, and I like also the way the King James uh, says it, because it says it this way, lest uh, by, the, by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be what? A castaway. This word castaway, as you see, it means to become an outcast, something to be thrown out. So notice Paul is saying here, lest, you know, uh, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. I myself should be thrown out. I myself should be disqualified. So again, he's using the the, the illustration of these uh, uh, Olympic games. Now, he says, all that run in a race, you know, by the way, you know, we're told that those uh, athletes that competed in those games, they had to prepare ahead of time. They they, they prepared through a strict training of 10 months before they competed. I'm always uh, uh, intrigued and amazed about the, the athletes from the Olympic games because that's exactly what they do. They live and breathe whatever it is that they are competing. Right? There, that's a discipline. That, that, that takes commitment, a lifetime of commitment. But Paul says, listen, they do all that to receive a perishable crown. 
you know, you know, go back to your little, the little crown there on the, on the image. This is what they would get. It, it wasn't much, but maybe they would, they would get bragging rights. You know, I won, you know, and that's what they received. But Paul says, listen, we, on the other hand, you know, we run to receive what? An imperishable crown. And what is that imperishable crown? Eternal life. The imperishable crown. That's, what, that's why we do it. But notice then that Paul, what Paul is saying in verse 27 here is that it could be possible not to receive the crown of eternal life. It could be possible to be cast away, to be thrown out if he didn't discipline himself. That's what he's saying there. Now we know the story of Paul. You know, the, 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 the fact that he was a, a persecuting the church, right? And, and he's on his way to Damascus, and, and there on his way to Damascus, Jesus appears to him, and they have a conversation. Long story short, G, uh, uh, Paul accepts Jesus as Savior and Lord of his life. And he proves that. He proves his love toward Jesus by becoming the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul, uh, I tell you, I mean, besides Jesus, he's my next biblical hero. You know, because if there was any, uh, anybody that was a true Christian, that was Paul. He, he, li- he risked life and limb, left for dead twice in his, in his ministry because of what he did for Jesus, by proclaiming the gospel. It is Paul himself who, who has says that by grace we are saved through faith in Jesus Christ. He accepted Jesus. We're saved by grace. We, we saw that he was one of the examples we looked at last week of people who had the certainty of salvation. He said that on that day he will receive the crown of glory. He, re- he believed he was saved. He was saved because salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus and he had accepted Christ. So if Paul is saved, if Paul could say that he he believed in his salvation, if he could tell the churches that you're saved by grace, how is it that Paul then all of a sudden talks about losing the imperishable crown? How could he lose that, that salvation that he's talking about? Is salvation something that we can lose? Notice the question on the screen, can a Christian lose their salvation? Is salvation something that once we have it, no problem, we got it forever? Or is salvation something that we can lose? That's what the question is. Now, the gift of choice is one of the greatest gifts that God has given us. And we make choices every day, don't we? Not things that are not necessarily important. Do I get up today to go to work? What am I going to wear today when I go to work? What am I going to have for breakfast? Do I go to church this Sabbath? All those are nice choices that we have. Some things, though, we have no choice over. For example, we have no choice over being born with a sinful nature. That's unfortunate, right? But that is the reality. We don't have a choice over our sinful nature, but we do have a choice over accepting the solution to that sinful nature. We can choose life. We cannot choose. We can choose otherwise. In fact, uh, it was Moses that told the children of Israel in Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today that I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life, both you and your, that you, both you and your descendants may live. Choose life. You can choose death. 
And God respects your choice, but again, this is your choice. You've got to live with the consequences, but it is still your choice. Aren't you thankful for, for, for free will, for the choice that God had given us? And yet, there are millions of Christians, you know, we call them evangelical Christians, but there are many, many of them who believe that God opens the door for a once-in-a-lifetime decision, and then once that decision is made, he closes the door forever. That is, that, that once you decide to be saved, that you can never choose to be lost again. That in essence, you know, if you think about it, if once I've made that choice, I can never lose my salvation again. In essence, if you think about it, I am losing my free will. As if, you know, Jesus somehow puts a gun to our heads and says, all right, now that you've made the decision to, to, to accept me, now you're stuck with me whether you want it or not. We've taught, we mentioned this last Sabbath, this concept of one saved Always saved. Now you may wonder, well, why do we have to talk about this? We Seventh-day Adventists don't believe in this. But what I found, friends, is, you know, obviously, you know, into the Seventh-day Adventist church, many people come from other denominations, and a lot of times these things aren't talked about enough. And perhaps unconsciously, we still have that in our mind. Well, as long as I made that decision once, I am okay that I cannot lose it. Furthermore, you know, I, I, this is something I often do. There are topics that, for many, it's hard, it's hard to explain. So when maybe you have a conversation with another Christian of, of another persuasion, uh, uh, that person may bring something up to you, may bring a, a Bible verse here and there to justify what they believe, and a lot of times we're like, eh, well, I don't know how to explain that. So, you know, I like to talk about these things. But, but I want you to think about this. Because you notice it says, once saved, always saved, truth or lie. If this concept of one saved, always saved is true, if, if once you accept Jesus at one point in your life, no matter what you do afterwards, will not affect that salvation, if you can do what you want, you can go where you want to go, you can come to church, you cannot come to church, it doesn't matter what you do. Once you did it at the beginning, you accepted Jesus, you cannot lose that salvation. That has got to be the greatest doctrine in the history of the world. Think about it. I can eat, drink, and be merry, and it's not going to change the fact that I am saved. But if it isn't true, if it is a lie, then it has to be one of the greatest, or perhaps the most greatest heresy in, in, in the world. Because it creates a sense of false security. A sense of false security. And you can count on that. If there's an area where Satan is going to try to deceive people, it's in here. Creating that sense of false security because, because that means it takes away our responsibility and we feel safe. I, I don't even have to go to church anymore. I don't even have to do this, that, and the other for Jesus because I accepted him you know, back there when I was six years old. It eliminates that sense of responsibility. Now, as you may imagine, there's, there's a number of passages that, the, that you know, others use to explain this concept of one save, always save. And I'm going to share what one of them with you that's probably one the most often quoted. And it's found in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, and verses 28 through 29. 
John chapter 10, verses 28 through 29, it says, And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So, 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 so Nate, you said amen. Because this is, this is what it seems to be saying, friends. What, it, what, what those two passages seem to be saying there is that once we uh, have accepted God, once we accepted Jesus, nothing, nobody can snatch us out of his hand. That's what it seems to be saying, isn't it? That's why many people say amen. So, but is this what, is it, what it's saying? What, what, what do we need to do to understand a Bible, a Bible passage? Context, right? Context, context, context. We need to understand what the context is. And the context of this passage actually starts in verse 22. In verse 22, we read about the Feast of the Dedication in Jerusalem. And there, Jesus is responding to a question that was posed by the Jews. Namely, you see it in verse 24. How long do you keep us in doubt if you are the Christ? Tell us plainly. This is what they ask him. And so Jesus answers them by giving them an illustration, an illustration of the good shepherd. And notice verse 27. Verse 27, Jesus is my sheep, hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So again, he, he, he mentions these two passages there in verse 28 and 29, but if we ignore the context, we're going to come to a wrong conclusion. Jesus, again, answers the Jews by giving the illustration of the, of the shepherd. A good shepherd knows his sheep, and they know him, right? But notice, again, it is the sheep, my sheep, what do they do? They hear, they hear his voice, and what do they do when they hear? They follow See, when we talk about this, this sense of security, the, 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 this issue of not losing your salvation, of immunity against being snatched away, it, it is there for those who hear the voice of Jesus and do what? And follow him. It doesn't in, in any way keep us safe of those who, who, do, who, who choose not to hear Jesus or to follow him. Do you really think... That, that, that if you don't follow Jesus, if you don't want to hear his voice and don't follow him, you, you, are you going to be safe? No, again, this is why context is important. If I take verses 28 and 29 aside, I can make it say anything I want. But we can't do that with the Bible. We've got to go before that. And again, in this case, this Bible passage to tell us that it's in the hearing and in the following which provides immunity against being snatched away from the Father's hand. So what is our responsibility? We need to hear the voice of Jesus, and we need to do what? We need to follow him. And if you're hearing the voice of Jesus, and if you're following him, which implies that you are obeying him, then okay. You, you, you can be certain of that. But it doesn't mean that, I, well, you know, I don't have to follow Jesus anymore. I did it once back, you know, back then, and it's okay. Again, Satan creates this false sense of security. There's another uh, few passages in John 15 that seem to explain this pretty well. Uh, the, the vine, you know the, the illustration Jesus uses on the vine. This is John 15, in verses 4 through 6. Notice what Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you 
unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do how much? Nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. So notice Jesus is saying here, we Christians are what in this parable? We are the branches. We are the branches, and who is Jesus? Jesus is divine, right? And Jesus is saying, abide in me. Now, this word abide means to stay connected, to remain or to stay connected. So Jesus is saying, listen, Christians, listen, you branches, that you are with me now. Stay connected to me. Remain in me. Abide in me. Stay connected to me. Because think about it, in the, in, 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 uh, in the real world, if you, if you take a branch and you break it off the tree, what happens to the branch? It dies. Why? Because it's not no longer connected to the vine. The vine is where is life, the resources. Without the vine, we have no resource, we have no life, we end up dying. We have no power unless we are connected to the vine. But why would Jesus tell us, in essence, stay connected to me if it's impossible for you to lose that connection? The fact of the matter is, we have a choice whether to stay connected or to let go. And if we let go, what happens? Well, we die, right? He says, that, you know, they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. So it is possible, notice, it is possible to have a connection with Jesus. And maybe you have a connection with Jesus right now and I say, praise the Lord. But it is possible that you can choose to lose that connection. And if you choose to lose that connection, what happens? Well, again, you die because you're, you're not connected to the source of life. There's another parable that Jesus uses to explain this. It's found in Luke chapter 12. In Luke chapter 12, verses 43 through 46, the parable of the faithful and wise servant. The parable of the faithful and wise servant. Notice what it says. And the Lord said, who then is that faithful and wise steward, whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season. Blessed is that servant whom the master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But, if that, notice there's a but there, right? But. If that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink uh, and be drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him and at an hour when he is not aware and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. So here, here is a perfect example of how a faithful and why steward can be punished with the unbelievers? Think about it. He is faithful. You wouldn't think that faithful people are punished with unbelievers. The faithful ones are the ones going to heaven, aren't they? And we all want to be faithful and wise stewards. We all should be faithful and wise stewards. But here we find that this man, the master somehow, recognized the, 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 these qualities in this man. 
He was faithful. He was wise. And because he was faithful and wise, he appointed him with great responsibilities, right? And, and of course, uh, uh, th th this faithful steward is a symbol of those who have accepted Jesus, who have a relationship with Christ. There are true believers. They're wise and faithful. But what happened? Well, we don't know exactly the, the whole issue, but the, the parable says that because the master was delaying, he started to change course. Now, there are probably other reasons why, but the, the, the parable does say, you know, because the master was delaying, he started to get drunk, he started to beat his servants, and the master came in an hour he was not aware, and he punished them, didn't he? A faithful and wise steward who had a connection with a master, who's a master? The master is God, right? The master is Jesus. He recognized this man as a faithful man. But this faithful man also had, well, still had free will, right? And he, once he was wise, he chose to go through a different direction. And again, he, he ended up in ruin, eternal ruin and death. It reminds me of the words of Paul in Hebrews 10.38. Notice it says, the just shall live by faith. But if anyone does what? If anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So notice that it is possible that once you have a relationship with Jesus, it is possible to draw back. Why would Paul, if, 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 if once you made that decision to accept Jesus, nothing is going to change that, why in the world would he say draw back? It would not be possible for a person to draw back. But the fact that he mentions it, if anyone does, it's, it, the implication is that it is possible for someone to draw back. Does that make sense? You with me? Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament, at least in my opinion, is the clearest one on this issue of the choices that we have. One, you know, we always have choices, but even when we accept Jesus, we still have choices. Notice uh, Ezekiel chapter 33, and that's verses 13 and 18. When I say to the righteous that he shall surely live, but he begin or, or he trusts in, in his own righteousness and commits iniquity, none of his righteous works shall be remembered. But because of the iniquity that he has committed, he shall die. Verse 18, when the righteous turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, he shall die because of it. Notice the, 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 the issue here, the fact that he was trusting in his own righteousness. Remember, we're not trusting in anything of ourselves. We're trusting in him. But the gospel is great. You know, the, the message of the gospel is that, of course, that when we accept Jesus, we can, we can uh, if we, when we sin, the Bible says, if you, if you repent and confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of our own righteousness. So, so we are forgiven, we are cleansed, but that's not it. It's, uh, it's not all. Because the Bible tells us that the part of the gospel is not only that God forgives us and cleanses us, but he acquits us. That now, he, does, he no longer sees us as guilty. He says, you're innocent. And furthermore, not only does it say that you're innocent, now he says that you're righteous. That's deep. You're righteous. Now, of course, that righteousness comes by faith. This is why we call it justification by faith or righteousness by faith. Because the righteousness of Christ becomes ours. He, he, he puts it into our account. You know? I didn't have a dime in my account. But all of a sudden, the next, you know, I got $30 million in there. That's what Jesus did. I'm righteous. 
here in Ezekiel, this was a righteous person, wasn't he? The righteous person, the righteous deeds, but because he departed from that, now his righteous deeds will not be remembered anymore. Why? Because he did connect it. Begin to trust in your own righteousness, in your own deeds, what you're doing, and you, and you lose trust to the one you need to be holding on to, the vine that you need to be holding on to, and you lose that connection because now you trust in yourself. I don't need the vine anymore. I can be my own plant. Let me break myself off and plant myself off. No, you can't do that. Once you lose that connection, you're done. You're done. You know, that we talked about the, Bible, uh, the, the book of life last Sabbath. We mentioned the book of life. You remember that, that Moses in, Exo- in Exodus 32, 32, tells God uh, uh, to forgive the children of Israel their idolatry, but if he, if he wouldn't forgive them, he said, if you don't forgive them, blot me out. Right? He believed that, you know, Moses was one of those characters that had the certainty of salvation. He, he believed his name was written on it, right? But he says, blot me out. So, the, the, so the, the implication is that your name can be written in that book, but erased. Now, the book of life, that book, you know, because God keep record, keeps record in heaven, Apparently, that book, that once you receive Jesus as Savior, you receive the gift of salvation, your name is written on that book. But now, if this issue, if this concept of one save, always save is true, then the clear implication is that once your name is written on that book, can erase it. It's, it's permanent ink. That's the implication, right? If I can't lose my salvation, that means that my name will be in that book forever and nothing can be done to erase it. But Moses said, of course, you can blot it out. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, it says, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from where? From the book of life. So the, 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 what we need to do, according to this passage, is to overcome, right? If we overcome, then our name will stay in that book. But if we don't overcome, the clear implication is that God will clear, you know, he, he will erase your name. He will blot out your name from that book. And what happens if your name is not written in the book of life? You won't make it. Revelation 18 says that it, 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 those that, that, that don't have their names written in the book of life are cast into the lake of fire. So notice then that it is possible to have your name written on that book, but for whatever circumstances, for whatever decisions that you have made in your life, eventually you're burning the lake of fire. Yeah, your name was written in there, but apparently it was erased. Why was it erased? Perhaps because of choices that you made. Because of choices that you made. But you know what? One of the uh, common responses, uh, you know, I've had conversations with um, with. Uh, uh, people in this concept of once they've always saved. In particular, before I became pastor, you know, I had you know colleagues that would you know, would talk about this, and and, and the, the the response that I would get, well, if, if they draw back, if if they break off from the vine, it means they weren't connected in the first place. You know, they weren't sincere in the first place, and that's why they're not saved. They weren't saved at all in the first place. But who are we to judge that? I mean, think about it. When a person comes and, and receives Jesus and enters into baptismal waters, we, we, can, we can be sure this person is saved because of the decision they made. We don't have any, anything to hang that on. But, you know, if you're not sincere, you know, of course, God knows that. But we don't. We can't make that judgment. Yeah. And, and the other part is, one other response that I often have heard is, 
why would anybody, think about it, they would, they, they would say, if a person truly accepts Jesus, why would anybody who sincerely loves Jesus, who, who, who knows about the grace and the love and the mercy of Christ and falls in love with Jesus and accepts the gifts of salvation, why would anybody turn their back on God? That's impossible. And I would, I would agree with that. I, I ask the same question. Why would anybody who has experienced the love of God, who has experienced his mercy and his grace, and receives freely that gift of salvation, why would they draw back? Why would they turn their backs on God? It is a good question. And I can't say I understand why, but it happens. And one clear example of this is Lucifer. Think about Lucifer in heaven. Who knows how many eons of ages he lived in heaven before he rebelled. Lucifer was right there in the presence of God. He was one of those two cherubim. You know, in the presence of God, right before God, he, he experienced the love of God and his mercy and his grace and, and all that is wonderful for who knows how many eons of years. But at some point, what happened? He rebelled. Now, I can't understand why he would do that. The Bible calls this the mystery of iniquity. Why would anybody do that? I don't understand it. I, don't, I can't tell you why, but it happens. Lucifer did it, and we do it too. We do it too, unfortunately. You know, one of the greatest, uh, best examples of, of someone who had been saved and, uh, and lost that salvation because of choices is King Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel. And uh, we read about Saul in 1 Samuel 10:6. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, and you will prophesy with them and turn in, uh, be turned into another man. And, Paul, and Saul, indeed, was turned into another man. If you, you follow the narrative of how he, he was chosen and, and how things change in him, uh, uh, the, the, the narrative says that, that at least twice he prophesied. The Spirit of God was upon him. If he was, if he was an unsaved man, the Spirit of God would not have come upon him. So he, the Spirit of God was upon him. He became a, a different man. And oh, uh, how I wish he had stayed that way. Because, you know, he was a big man. He was a strong man. I mean, if anybody was, was there, to, better to be the king of Israel, that was him. But he made different choices. And, and it's sad how we, we read about it, uh, the end of his life here in uh, First uh, Chronicles 10, 13, and 14. So Saul died for his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against the Lord, because he did not keep the word of the Lord, and also because he consulted a medium for guidance. But he did not inquire of the Lord, therefore he called him and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. So he started, he started faithful, but again, now he died in his unfaithfulness. Saul committed suicide as a result of all this. He turned his back on God. You remember a few months ago we talked about, we had a, had a two-part series that, that was titled, It's Not How You Start, But How You Finish. We looked at King Asa. King Asa started well, but he ended the wrong way. Manasseh, of all the evil kings of, of Israel, Manasseh, or Judah, Manasseh started terribly, but ended up a converted man. It's not how you start, how you finish. You've got you to gotta live with the end in mind. Unfortunately, Saul, as an example, was not like this. But now, some people will say, well, pastor, I understand all this. But the fact of the matter is, even after we receive Jesus as Savior, we're still sinners. That's a, that's, a, that's a fact. That's a reality. We still have that sinful nature. 
So, Pastor, you mean to tell me that salvation is something that we can fall in and out, in and out every time we fall in and we sin? No, of course not. Of course not. But see, friends, there is a difference between the occasional sin and living in sin. You see, there's a difference, right? We, because we have a sinful nature, even after receiving Jesus, it's still a reality. We, have, we, we, we do fall, don't we? We do fall. But by God's grace, because we follow the promises, we believe the promise of God's word, that he who repents and confesses, uh, God will forgive and cleanse. By God's grace, we get up again, right? Yeah, and, and, and so, you know, the, the idea is that, that next time we're stronger and we keep on walking, sometimes we fall again. It may be by the same little thing. We fall again, but God's grace, little by little, in this journey, in this process, God strengthened us so that we no longer fall. But we do fall, don't we? That is different than a person who consciously and willingly, understanding what God wants and what God doesn't want, they follow the course of sin. And they live in that course and again, this is where the, the danger of having that false sense of security, because if I believe I was, uh, you know, say when I was six years old, well, I'm sealed. I mean, the fact that I'm cheating on my wife is inconsequential. That's what people, people believe. That's different. In fact, in the book Steps to Christ, page 57, Ellen White, the author, um, writes that the character is revealed not by occasional good deeds, and occasional misdeeds, but by the tendency of the habitual words and acts. So it's not the occasional things, it's what we make a habit in our life that measures where we even, you know, end up. You know, there's always an if in, our, in every consideration of eternal security. First John 1 John 1.7 tells us, but if we walk in the light, and he is the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ's Son cleanses us from all our sins. So if we walk in the light, we're good. What happens if we don't walk in the light? Well, the blood of Jesus can't cover us. And that is our responsibility. And by the way, friends, this in no way, is, in no way changes what we talked about last, last Sabbath about having the assurance of salvation. Remember, we have the assurance of salvation because we're not trusting in ourselves. We are trusting in God. We're trusting that he'll keep his promise. And see, this is what Paul was talking about. This is what Paul was talking about. He uses this illustration of, of, of the Olympic Games, of, of disciplining himself, of staying connected, of running the race. Because when you run the race, you will become an overcomer. Maybe some of you don't like to run. I hated running. I became an avid run fanatic afterwards. And now that I, am, I like running, I can't run anymore. That's a different story. The point is, we need to keep running the race. But again, it's not because of anything we've done, or we do, or we will do. The fact that we are saved is because we are trusting in the atoning death of Jesus Christ on the cross for us. But we do have a responsibility to abide. We have a responsibility to stay connected to the vine. And of course, again, we, we talked about this. How do we abide? How do we stay connected? Well, simple. We stay connected by prayer. By having that prayer life, we stay connected by having the study of God's word. We stay connected by ministry, and that ministry can be divided into two things, actively being involved in church and witnessing. Amen. And you can't do without any of them. You can't just convince yourself, I'll do one and two, and three and four are optional. 
If you want to stay connected, if you want to abide in Jesus, if you want to continue running the race, you've got to do all four, or don't do any of them. Stay connected. You know, friends, salvation is the easiest thing in the world. You know, sometimes we overcomplicate ourselves. And we, we, we somehow believe, well, you know, you know I, I, I'm going to have to work hard. This is what I said last week. People ask you, well, you know, I'm sa- are you saved? And you say, well, I'm working on it. And it requires a lot of work. I don't know if I'm making it. Friends, the heavy lifting has already been done by Christ. All we need to do is accept it, hold on to him by dear life, live a surrendered life, friends. And, and, and I asked this last Sabbath, and I'll ask you again, if, if you've received Jesus as your Savior, then you are on a safe place. You are on a safe journey. But if you haven't, the time to do it is today. The time is to do it now, because tomorrow has not been guaranteed to anybody. And friends, we are living in, in, in what I believe is indeed the time of the end. That Jesus is coming soon. The best thing that you can do, the best decision that you can ever make in your life is to receive the gift of salvation. And leave this place with the assurance that your sins have been forgiven, that you've been cleansed, that you've been acquitted, that you've been declared righteous. And that if you abide and stay connected to him, you have nothing to fear. Run the race. I encourage you to run the race. And in the end, you will receive that crown of glory. That crown of righteousness with the Lord shall give me, but not only to me, but to all those who have made Jesus their Savior and Lord. Is that you this morning? Is that you this morning? I look forward to bowing myself, as as this image uh, says, you know, shows, bowing before Jesus. Think about it, thanking him and praising him and worshiping him because it is because of his sacrifice that I'm there. And then I'll take my crown off my head and place it on his feet. And I'll thank him and worship him. And I'll give him a big hug, and well, the rest is history. That's what I want to do. How about you? And we will glorify God for all eternity, because it is because of his love that we're there. Thanks for joining us. If you're ever in the Nashville area, come and visit us at the Nashville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. We're located at 2800 Blair Boulevard in Nashville, Tennessee. You may also visit us at nfsda.org.